kept on hearing this word disruption, 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 mm. you know, like, and every time you thought you had a plan, something undid. And I thought to myself, you know what? We actually have to embrace disruption. It's only at the point that we embrace it that we can find beauty. It's like wabi-sabi. It's like embracing mm. imperfection. Hey, welcome to the Lady Brains podcast. We're your hosts, Caitlin Judd and Anna McKenzie, co-founders of Lady Brains, a digital and IRL club for female founders and founders-to-be. If you're smart, savvy, and ambitious, then Lady Brain, you are in the right place. Get ready for a dose of inspo, hard-hitting truths, and actionable insights. Strap in. Thank you to everyone to be here, and Bianca, especially thank you to you for uh, being here today. My name's Anna McKenzie. And I'm Caitlin Judd. And we are the co-hosts of the Lady Brains podcast. We interview incredible women, female founders, entrepreneurs, business owners, and we couldn't be more excited to be back here at Fashion Week interviewing you today. (laughs) Thank you for having me. An icon of the Australian fashion scene. In fact, a few people have actually referred to you as fashion royalty. How do you feel about that title? Can we can we call you that? <laughs> <laughs> I think we're we're about a republic. Yes. There's no royalty in Australia, and I think that's what I love about it because there is or it's an, always an evolving landscape. No one no one gets any position. You always mm-hmm. have to earn it every single day. <laughs> so you opened uh, Afterpay Australian Fashion Week on Monday with your runway show. It's been a couple of days. Has the dust settled how are you feeling oh wow um I think that I feel really lucky there's this amazing opportunity that you um have in the days that follow where there's this stream of beautiful ideas and instances of people that are what their impression of the show and I had an incredible energy that I wanted to give the show and an optimism and a courage and I promise whenever I ask them I don't tell them what what I was aiming for and everyone said oh I just got so much energy out of it so and there was such a sense of delight and color and optimism and the woman and movement and I suppose those are the moments where because you're never in the audience you never experience it in that real time where you have this tangible sense that you get the goosebumps that you did leave that like impression in people's bodies I don't know when yeah Mm. with the dancers with the movement with everything it's it's a felt sense and I think I just feel so touched to have shared that felt sense you mentioned movement you had the Sydney dance company dancers there they were walking down they peeled off they started dancing in unison and on their own it was beautiful why did you incorporate movement and dance um for people who know me uh I think that everything that I do with my clothes is about movement I'm I drape on the body. I have these very large gestures with my hands. And for me, it's always about what it does in the third dimension. And I really find that every time I've worked with Sydney Dance for the last five years and incredibly seeing my clothes on them inspires even more movement in my clothing. So when I was this moment of, you know, someone said, look, you know, you're opening Fashion Week. Is there anything, you know, you you feel that will really capture your spirit. For me, it's always been dance. It's Mm. just I want clothes that it's not about how, you know, we sit in them. It's how they inspire us to move. And as a woman, how they inspire you to feel free in them. I'm very, I can't stand being constrained by clothes. I need to feel the way that they kind of envelop and drape and Mm. uh, kind of dance with you every day. And they amplify everything that you do. And from they had these very small gestures which I think I loved how it started with and then it came to kind of this frenetic energy I think there's also a little part of me that wants to say you can do anything in these clothes you may think they can only go on a catwalk but anyone who's seen me gardening will be like wow <laughs> you won't believe what she was wearing as she was like, like gardening or doing the laundry <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it is a running joke amongst all my friends <laughs> so I'm curious when you come up with the idea for your runway obviously there are so many different different things to consider. There are the clothes, but the music, the lighting, the space, the environment, the temperature, the people. How do you, what's your creative process like? How do you dream up a vision for your shows? 
Uh, for me, it all starts with the vision for the collection. And this collection was one that I really felt, you know, after the two years that everyone has experienced so much, you know, a real change in the way we live our lives. And I just, I kept on hearing this word disruption, 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 mm. you know, like, and every time you thought you had a plan, something undid. And I thought to myself, you know what, we actually have to embrace disruption. It's only at the point that we embrace it and we stop trying to think about, well, what would it be like? I just want to go back to that space that we can find beauty. It's like wabi-sabi. It's like embracing mm. imperfection. So it was like, okay, well, I'm, I love wabi-sabi. I love embracing perfection. This is another challenge and this is embracing disruption. And I thought, what does that look like in music? What does that look like in art? What does it look like in photography? What, it, what is a woman who is a disruptive beauty? So I found the, you know, like the muses that always are kind of, you know, like they have a fiery, they're kind of quite quiet for a moment and then they have this fiery thing that comes out. And I realized how much I love those, those characters. There's this unexpectedness in how things evolve. And so all of the pieces in the show and in the collection had to have this moment moment that they did something you never expected. Yeah. So it was a tank dress that then suddenly had a monster hoop of it, or it was, you know, like a bonded dress that then suddenly was broken, had this twist in the back and another fabric altogether. So the rule was you couldn't have a rule. You couldn't assume <laughs> that it ever would end up in that way. You had to just, and, and there's a liberation that happens to that inner creative where it's like, oh, the only rule is A, there are no rules and B, it can't be predictable. So you really push yourself into a completely different space and that just led to everything like one of my friends listened to the music and was like I really have no idea where your head is at with this and I was like okay then I've done my job yeah, right. and taking I was like did you feel great did it make you want to dance did you go to bed listening to it and wake up and you could still hear it ringing in your ears and I'm like yeah it was just so there and I was like did it make you smile I was like yes I was like okay fine yeah. it, does, it doesn't have to have this like linear perfection in terms of it just had to have that energy yeah. And I think we said that actually, we we're having a chat yesterday and we were told not to expect a linear show. And, 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 and we, we said, oh, well, it wasn't, you know, and I think um, even though at the end when the models were walking down, it felt really powerful, but in a way that you kind of said it wasn't, um, you know, a perfect powerful, it was a bit of a disrupted powerful. And I just loved it. I did get the goosebumps. I think the theme was liberation of women. Did you coin it? That or um, was there something else? For that me, liberating women has been just an undertone to all of the work that I do, and. Um, liberation exists in so many forms um and for me like you know when you're doing a, a collection that doesn't have a show liberation can be the liberation of the tailoring so whether it be you take something that's quite a classic scoop but then you put it in a really unexpected bright color or a liberation might be something that you you know you splice pieces through or you open jackets through the back so there's there's a hundred ways you can liberate clothing but i think what was really fun about the show and really taking that further was you were finding like we managed to cover from 152 centimeters to 182 <laughs> centimeters so we had height we had age we had race we had size and I think that there is always a sense that people say oh well you know you do those but it's not for me and la 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 so it was just kind of like throwing away all those ideals of what we who we think this is meant to be on on how we think they're meant to look and and how we're meant to dress because I think the great thing about COVID is people have lost their dress codes and actually that's a liberation but it's also confusing if people feel yeah. like I go to my suit every day and now I don't know what I'm meant to wear it's like wear what makes you want to dance every day wear what makes you smile and one day you might feel like you want to protect yourself and put on a, a suit that makes you feel like you've got this kind of strength to it and it's understated and another day you might want to wear a bright pink dress and whatever that is that day that you feel you need to respond to that and you need to be given by society and by ourselves the freedom to do that and in a way I have this thing about the conversation the first conversation you have with people is what you wear you mm. walk in a room you haven't said a word someone's already decided who you are by what you wear and only for women it's not a male conversation yeah. and I always think that if we can't be free in how we express ourselves in our clothes how can we possibly be free in what we say because it's the first thing we're saying when we walk in mm. the room so 
all of that was trying to throw it up in the air. Do you feel like as a perfectionist, as you just said that you were, <laughs> has this um, process been liberating for you as a perfectionist to kind of just go, you know what, there are no rules. Definitely. There is no perfect. Yeah. I can do whatever I want. I, I, I think that it, I liberated myself as a designer in this collection as much as I hope <laughs> I liberated everyone else. And I think that um, I've thought a lot about how you keep yourself you know, how you keep yourself evolving as a designer because even, you know, people go, oh, Bianca Spender, she's about that. Mm -hmm. and, and I feel more than ever at this point in time, I wanted to say, well, you think you know what I am and I'm not going to be, <laughs> not, I'm, I want to surprise you, not because it's discordant with what I do, but just taking it to another level because I don't think, you know, like fashion and design and creativity, it's always about pushing past what people expect of you and what even you expect of yourself and it takes a lot of courage and it takes a lot of um what's the word energy to really like break it all up and it was really one where we would literally just cut things or open things or smash things together to say that well we have nothing to lose here because our, our motto was there are no rules it's about courage and liberating the form Oh, I love that. So well said. <laughs> sounds chaotic, but it sounds it's really totally you know. chaotic. I was like, I've, I ended up. We were. I was like, I played some music that was really chaotic, that was mm -hmm. liberated, and I think after a few days, everyone was like, "Can we have some more calm Stop. music?" <laughs> Stop. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. So we want to talk a little bit about this idea of creative versus commercial, because yeah. you're obviously a creatively led person, but you also studied commerce. You come from a business background, and we often talk with women who are building businesses about that tension in terms of creative versus commercial. Do you feel you call like... call it a tightrope? <laughs> we could kind of think about it like a bit of a spectrum or a seesaw. Yeah. But do you think about it like a tightrope? Um, well, I think it's the, it's the yin and the yang. I think sometimes I feel like it feels like a tightrope. Sometimes it feels like a scale and balance. Um, I think it uh, there's always... I think what I used to do was I used to ask all of the collection to hold both parts. Mm. So I used to ask all of my collection to hold every creative thing I wanted to say and every commercial thing that, you know, the market, um, you know, uh, you know, that, that retail needed, that online needed. And I actually decided recently that I, I have to separate it. You can't ask everything to be everything to everyone. You have to go, I'm going to give myself this gift of these items that I hope that they inspire and transpire to be runaways and everyone goes, that is the most perfect thing I want to wear, but I don't actually have that expectation of you. Your expectation is you're allowed to be my dream and you're allowed to just propel us into new creative ideas and worlds. And then I'm also going to think about how can I represent you in a colorway that might not be three spots spliced together. So I might've gone the craziest form with the craziest like sculptural um, boning through it with the craziest three prints together. And I might need to present that in black in three <laughs> different ways, you know, to feel that there's, I, I've given that form, that wildness, a, a moment to shine in a way that might integrate themselves into people's wardrobes a little mm. better. And then I've also given, you know, these things that I know that people love that tie into the world. So I'm not asking everything to be everything to everyone. And I think that it took a long time for me to find that uh, place and to go, there's enough here for all of us um, to find a space because, you know, there are a hundred different women and I'm the person who I always think that everyone has something that they're simple with. I'm quite simple with shoes. Like I like a shoe that goes with half of my wardrobe or something like that. Other people like they'll wear a different shoe for every outfit, but they want a pair of pants that goes with half of their wardrobe. So you're always putting that head on of going, well, I'm going for the crazy dress in the crazy colors and the crazy. But if I was the shoe version of me on a dress, what would I do for them? So it doesn't have to be personal. It doesn't have to be like sad. You can just be putting yourself in different spaces. Mm -hmm. When you're planning for, say, a creative concept, a new range, is there difficulty in having to sometimes pull back on the creative vision? Have you ever had to do that? I'm sure the accounting team are like, oh, no, you're spending too much. You're spending too much here. Oh, I, I'm actually, I mean, I'm, 
I'm the daughter of a post-war Italian immigrant. Mm. So if anything, I'm, I'm probably too rigorous and I've, mm. I've actually had to like, let the, 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 um, everything loose. Like I started with commerce and then I went to fashion mm. and Paris, I, I worked in Paris for three years where, I mean, honestly, the company I worked for was amazing and they went amazingly bankrupt three times as well. And so I think I had a very felt sense of what really commercial looked like mm. and what really creative looked like. And it's been a real process over the, you know, like the last decade of finding, well, there's a happy space in between those two. And again, like pulling it out to go, well, it's not, madness doesn't have to be everywhere. What does mm. happy madness look like so I mean I'm a I'm a super excel geek I'm a super numbers nerd so I think I've always known where I stand and I and I really feel for creatives who don't have that numbers nerd around them and I think they probably just need one in the corner going mm. hey <laughs> have you added this up it might be something like this <laughs> and I guess sometimes you know the best creativity can come from constraint oh I mean with my uh, I, I absolutely agree they've done all these studies like after wars, there is the most kind of mm. um, prolific work that is usually um, created. And I think it's because there's so much to say. And having a lot to say doesn't always need a lot of money. You know, I, there are lots of collections that the antithesis of that, like, you know, I think John Galliano, his first collection, it was all in white cotton poplin. And, you know, there've been magic moments like that all through the sphere of, you know, Christo, it was just wrapping a cliff in one color of fabric. Like there are amazing ways, but for me, I suppose working with dead stock fabric is one of the ways I really shifted my creative pra practice to have 50% of all of the fabrics in the collection only from remnants so you actually don't start with a color palette you start with well these are fabrics I love how can I weave them into a color palette and then what can I do to make the things that kind of don't connect connect so this print I created and it's because <laughs> um, I had a clover like the base fabric I had found and then I had found this aubergine and then I'd found a mm -hmm. lilac and a pistachio yeah. and I was like well they're all great but they don't kind of perfectly all tie into Together. But if I do this print that links it all into it and it looks like it all made sense. So I really believe, particularly when we're trying to be sustainable, that resourcefulness and really working out what is your frame rather than just asking for a blank canvas can be your best friend in making you think outside of the square. Yeah. Is that how you approach design sort of from almost from the bottom up, sort of looking at what's around you, drawing inspiration from lots of different places and kind of building a vision for a collection in that way? Or do you sort of work top down? You have a, have a vision for something and you sort of figure out how to execute that? Um, wow. I don't know. I think I'm circular. Yep. Like I think mm -hmm. everything is a whirlwind and my poor team is like trying to follow which way the cyclone <laughs> is going left or maybe it's clockwise or anti-clockwise. But I think it's more a question of, well, dead stock definitely is, I suppose, bottom up. So, and then I think in terms of shape, I'm probably top down. And then there has to be this way that the jigsaw pieces of how those two meet in the middle come together um and i think that having that sense of well this is where my shape is where i don't constrain myself mm. because i i i'm confident i can almost create any shape in terms of form um being a draper and and i'm a pattern maker um and then giving myself the constraint around the fabric it really i each fabric i get it's like how can i unlock your properties like this Love is that. a fabric in my range and it's a check but it's really really drapey and it's really slippy and so we cut most of it on the bias because we were like this is never going to line up with the check so so really working out how to I suppose it's like the you start with your fridge. What are the things that are left in that bottom drawer and how do you make that meal? I've always yes. been that cook and I find you're the most ingenious chef when you have at least, I mean, you've got to have five ingredients in the bottom of the shelf to work with, but you can find things that you never would have found if you followed a recipe mm. book. And I love that yeah. side of creativity. Mm. Well, we did read that when you were growing up, um, you were told to always use everything that's in the fridge. Everything. And, yeah. And, <laughs> And let nothing go to waste. I'm interested, where do you source your inspiration? You said you've got the kind of bottom up with the dead stock. You've got, you know, also your draping and how you use the, the fabrics. Where else do you source your inspiration? 
For me, inspiration is always a feeling, like every collection starts with a feeling. And, and that feeling is very much a representation of um, like society and where we are at. I think that at, for women, clothing plays such an integral role in how we engage with our society and really... I will turn the wildest, like, let's call it social or psychological idea into um, think about how to convert that into a physical concept. So for this season, it was disrupted beauty. Um, and for the last season, I was thinking about this kind of, we were coming back from not having dressed and what was, there was a sort of minimalism that everyone needed, but there was also a playfulness. So I was going back to kind of this 90s world that I think had a simplicity for women and uh, and we kind of reinvented ourselves in a different way. So there's, there's always a social commentary um, and I, I just think the fashion only lives in the the felt sense of mm. people. So it's always really connecting to where, where we are at as, a, you know, there's not, let's not like women are at somewhere, but what we're feeling and how we can really connect into that. Beautiful. How long do those ideas take to kind of percolate and kind of, like are you just sort of taking inspiration 24-7, thinking about ideas? Like how long does it take you to kind of fully form those out into a collection? Have you ever pulled anything off the shelf that you had and I thought, you know, a few years ago and you're like, oh, that's oh, that. Time's right. Yeah. Definitely. I mean, I think that um, creativity is wild in as much as as soon as I somehow came to this world of like, disrupted beauty I literally saw it everywhere mm. so I couldn't yeah. I listened to the radio and I was like hang on and I was like is his is his um you know like CD just jumping and I mean I know CDs don't jump anymore but I was like or have they actually engineered the music like that and then I'd go to the art gallery and I'd be like oh, wow have they like tried to create this like juxtaposition and kind of tension between the harmony of this and the mm. disharmony of that and you, you just suddenly it's like your eye has come in focus and mm. something that you've never seen before is just prolific in your yeah. environment like someone's just planted it in every corner so it's a beautiful thing in the way that it can just it presents itself to mm. you um and and each time you see it again and if you have a team you know i'm really lucky with my team it's like have you seen more of it it's like oh I saw it over there yeah I was walking down the road it da, 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 da. it just it, it follows you everywhere yeah. Yeah. so you just your eye kind of comes into mm, a new focus, focus. yeah, yeah. Mm. Love that. I want to ask about um 2019 I believe it was when you bought out your business <laughs> on um the Carlos and Patty parent company so what was the reason like why did you decide to do that and why did you decide to do that at that particular time in your business journey um so my mum and I had worked I came back from Paris in 2003 so we'd been working with each other for uh a long time obviously mm. by that time and in that time I'd set up Bianca Spender and my sister had come five years into it to be the general manager and so she was managing both brands and at this point in time she left the business and it was a really interesting time because my mom and I um, were quite, were always had so much respect for each other's world and also at the same time always saw things quite differently. Probably to the outsider, there was such a connection. And to us, I, I mean, you know, it was all about that, you know, how with family, you always say, oh, well, I, you know, the, we would always laugh in the office if there was a rack of clothes. Everyone would be go, Bianca, Carla, Carla, Bianca, Bianca, Carla, <laughs> even if they were in the same fabric or anything. It was just, you could immediately tell our worlds. And I think we both, you know, mum and I had talked about, you know, what was this going to look like? And we both just said, okay, it's time. I, I needed to, you know, make all of the calls and, you know, learn by mistakes and, and be allowed, you know, because I was paying for them to make those mistakes. Yeah. And I think it's like that moment. I mean, I often coined it like moving out of home um, because, you know, I like physically moved my office out of her office and I, you know, moved, got, you know, I had 
shared stuff and I got my stuff and it was really you know you never know what it is to set up a home till you do it and you never know what it is to set up a business until you do it on your own and it was really beautiful because it was a time where you know mom was no longer my boss and I wasn't her employee and I got a mum back and she got a daughter back and we also could support each other in a really different way because we weren't you know, we weren't trying to sell, I wasn't trying to sell an idea to her and go, no, but this really is the next big thing. You should be backing it. And she didn't have to evaluate its commercial output. She mm. could just love her daughter's dream and go, well, I'll be interested to see how that works for you commercially. Hold that. <laughs> That's such a nice evolution to get that relationship back. What were some of those struggles in the first couple of months as you flew the nest, you you left and Um, went out on your own? Well, I think, I mean, for me, I Mm. became my general manager Mm. and that was huge. I... I'm dyslexic. It's something I only found out in the last few years. But for me, what that had meant, I'd never had to be on email. You know, I had always been, I'm a designer. I'm the designer. I suddenly was reading contracts. I was just following up on learning about HR. I was learning about managing people. The numbers never worried me, but understanding how all of the pieces puzzle set together, I have to say, like probably creatively for a bit, I felt like, oh my gosh, am I really creating all this complexity? Because creativity, like real, real creativity, when you're reinventing it every six months, each time you are putting so much stress on your critical path by, you know, the more creative you are, the more stress you're putting on your critical Mm. path because to resolve that idea, still being a perfectionist and deliver it on time. And I think that wearing all of those hats was... I I literally felt like I almost had to set up like a red hat and a green Mm -hmm. hat and a blue hat. And this was my designer hat and this is my buyer hat and this was my, and like, okay, I put this one on now. So, but I I loved it because now I like, I have this way that I understand everyone and what not like everyone does things differently, but I don't ever give someone a job to do that. I don't understand the complexities and the layers and all of the influencing factors of what I might create. Like I just did fashion week and I just said, everyone just know your critical path is going to be messed up by this, but in the long term, we'll be really happy that we did it. So I think that it's a real understanding of, of the complexity. And I, I think my, like, if you say, what was the one thing mm-hmm. that really hurt the difference between a PL and a cash flow like oh my god yeah I thought I knew because I knew my PL so well but I'd never done a cash flow because it was all synced in <laughs> with mums and GST and timing of Tequila. supers and the quarterly I was like oh my God, no one told me that I have to put GST in this whole thing and then take it out yeah. of this whole thing. Santa's favorite topic. Yes. Oh my God. It, it's honestly yeah. a killer. And I was like, what does everyone do in earnings before interest and tax? It means nothing. Cash flow is everything. Yeah. PL is just a lovely um, little yeah. thing at the end that you, doesn't even mean that your business yeah. will be here tomorrow. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so how did you navigate that? Who did you call on to support you? Oh, well, it was actually hilarious because I had to set up this cash flow. And I mean, I I did a Bachelor of Commerce majoring in marketing and finance. So I theoretically understood the construct of the numbers, but um, I set it up on my own and I was sent it to my brother and sister and I said, hey, guys, you both know more about this. Can you check it? And they just both went back to me and went, are you kidding? This is like, I think it was maybe a hundred rows deep and, you know, it had every single week. So 52 weeks long. And they were like, only you can know if these figures are right. And I was like, okay, Okay. well, I better be right. So I created my like estimation column. And then I just started tracking each week how good I was at estimating. And so some days I'd be like, some weeks I'd be like, yes. And I I was just so sad because no one knew. Like I we really wanted someone to go mm. I've been watching and you're re- you're right on the numbers I just have to go okay well done that yourself. you're like yeah. yeah you did that one yeah. so <laughs> and then the COVID version oh my god uh. like that was next level so I felt I was in good stead um to know how to even do a COVID cash flow forecast after I had mm-hmm. done that whole thing so literally when anyone says oh you know what do you think you know how much then I'll be like da 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 and everyone looks at me and then they go away 
And then they go and do the numbers and they come back and they're like, how did you know that? I was like, I've done every number in the business. I just know. (laughs) So it's pretty funny. So good. (laughs) Now you know your cash flow, you've got your P&L down pat, you're in control of the business. What else did you take away or learn in that moment from, yeah, taking the business out? Um, I think that probably owning all of the finance, I have mm. to be honest, impinged me creatively because yeah. it, it, uh, you get so in the detail and I wanted, then I started forecasting cause growth is all about forecast, right. And, um, how much you're investing for what is your return and what does that whole cycle look like? And in fashion, you know, you have no idea, you know, like there mm. is no crystal ball. There is no magic understanding. And I had to learn to actually, now that I knew every number in the business, I actually had to learn to sometimes let them go um, and find find what that core, you know, be prepared to take those risks, be okay about making mistakes, forgive myself for not being 5% close to my estimate or my prediction. Mm. And I had always done my scenario analysis of ABC, like 20% up, 20% down, that I was still safe. But then COVID was like, every store was closed. So it, Mm. it didn't even matter what version of anything you had done. There was no reality. And I suppose getting to the end of COVID on the other side and, you know, I didn't make money, but I didn't lose money and getting through that. And it's like, okay, B, now you can, you can take some risks. So I think I, I had, I learned knowing every number stopped me taking risks Mm. rather than empowered me to take the risk. Whereas now going through two years of COVID and kind of finding that creative courage and joy and really I don't know, getting so much energy from it has now gone, you don't actually need to forecast and scenario A, B, C this. If it's a good idea, you can make, you can take a risk and you can also make a mistake and be okay Mm. about that. You'll get through. Yeah. (laughs) And the confidence of now having your team as well to support that. We were chatting just before that, you know, COVID was almost like survival for a lot of businesses <laughs> and brands you know we it was just let's make it through let's not lose money let's try and survive yeah so once we're now you know not all, all the way through but we are on the other side of a of a tough two years it does look a bit different and it's exciting because you're now moving in a new direction mm-hmm. You've got something we want to know about this digital transformation, um, so to speak. What What is that? What are you doing at the moment? Where are you going with the business? Um, so for us, obviously, I mean, I think what what is so interesting about the digital landscape is that in our minds, digital sat in, aside from the the retail experience. And I think that all of the rules around how you approach all of it have been completely broken Mm -hmm. again. Um, And so for us, the digital transformation is really looking at how far we can extend our reach. So whether it be everything from, we've done everything from different um, brands, like we're, we're extending lines mm-hmm. and we've done everything from different women and different worlds. We're doing everything from movement and, and how that unfolds from, you can do really capsule collections and make yourself dynamic and, and see how you can test. And I think it's just actually having fun with it. I think the digital transformation is a space that you can really play with. Mm-hmm. And that is why it is such an exciting thing to build on and such an exciting um, way to open so many doors at the moment. And because I am a movement thing, I think until now digital has been a bit stayed for me because the front, back and side just doesn't tell the story and really looking at how you can bring in that third dimension and that movement into that world. And also I think that we have such a deeper experience and also a thirst for more storytelling, a thirst for a deeper understanding. Like I've always been on this sustainable world. I've always made in Australia. I've all like for the last five years, or I don't even know, it's definitely more had 50% dead stock. And I think that people coming on that journey with you, we've just got a different focus that we're building in and the way that you can really have that transparency and share that story with people is 
it's otherworldly to mm. what we've been before. Mm. So on the sustainability piece, obviously, you know, you have such a strong sustainability focus, which is amazing and also expected by consumers these days. How are you continuing to kind of push push the envelope and be um, an industry leader in that space? Um, I think at the moment we are really facing a struggle in manufacturing in Australia and really trying to tackle how to uh, build that capacity, look at what training programs look like. I think a lot of the craft is is leaving. I don't know if you've ever know if you know about hiring a pattern maker you'll know or a machinist Mm. they're like two of the hardest things and I think we really need to think I I often think about bread and how in the past no one would know a baker right like and you wouldn't know you wouldn't have know the name of the person who baked your bread whereas these days it's turned into this value-added service and good that people are tied to and I've I've been thinking as a you know in this industry how we can bring that value of the craft of whether it be making the fabric making the clothes all of that process back that people actually understand what is it to make a dress what does it take to roll him what does it take to do these things because I think there is a incredible craft that's handed through hands and if it disappears it's gone like you can't get it back so we really need to capture it before it does literally disappear from our environment why do you think that is i mean obviously from a brand's perspective it's cheaper to produce offshore but from a craftsman's perspective in australia why do you think that people aren't interested in kind of learning those new skills i think it's i think we're i've thought a lot about like construction so there was this time where builders made lots of beautiful round curves like art deco and then after that there was this kind of like modernization and everything kind of got streamlined and industrial and all the buildings turned into squares and only recently have we started to see round curves come in but it's only because they now can bend a monster piece of steel or an incredible piece of wood so that they can create the round curves without every single person's hand you know being part of that and I think we haven't got there yet in fashion where we've worked out how to uh, have the the craft but it not be so many people's hours in in their actual hands and I I don't know what it is going to take but I'm you know working with the AFC and working in my own head and working with my own team and building the skills to really see how can we transform that craft to something because some of the stuff I do is quite couture to something that can be in our environment because otherwise we're going to have very, uh, you know, I don't want to see fashion become more generic mm. to kind of fit into what we can produce. Mm. Have you found an interest from the consumer to ha- have a peek behind the curtains and understand the craft? Yes, and that is what I think that digital storytelling, yeah. that digital transformation, we're working more and more on how can we tell those stories about the craft and I really want to, I, I'm we're currently looking for a new space and I in that when I have have a new space I really want to show what it is like what what does your dress look like mm. you would have it's the craziest piece it's like one piece and then there's this one wild corner and if I said that it went like that and this piece there goes onto your shoulder they're like there's no, no way that yeah. you can <laughs> understand the transformation of it so I think you have to um in a way stand back and think about how you can show people like Mm. we have all learned how bread is amazing and we've all tried to bake in and it turned into a piece of cardboard coming out of our oven in COVID and I think that there is that thing where I want to get people sewing literally Mm. just you know let's try and make pillowcases and then you'll think differently when you might be buying a pillow for two dollars and you'll think how did they make a pillow for two dollars or if you try and dye a fabric or if you try and hand stitch something what does it actually take I have half of my my online team didn't know how to sew a button and I was like okay guys we're gonna learn how to sew <laughs> a button class, yeah. and they youtubed it and I was like oh my god <laughs> but obviously you know and they were like it took so long and I was like yeah imagine sewing eight of those on it and it's sewn by hand so I almost feel like doing these annotated diagrams on my clothes going sewn by hand sewn yeah. by hand not on that. the machine yeah <laughs> so it's the digital 
digital world can help us tell these stories, mm. but I, I think that we really need to invest into, in a way, taking the veil because there's this idea with fashion that it's all about smoke and mirrors, taking the mm. veil around and getting to the hands behind it and what that process actually looks like. Mm. Absolutely. Um, so when we were preparing for this conversation, we reached out to a good friend of ours, Leandra. From yes. Leandra Swim. Oh, I love Leandra. Yeah. She's amazing. You mentored her last year as part of the Indigenous Fashion Projects. I did. Program. But and she mentored me as well. So yeah. it was really a cross-pollination. <laughs> well, she said that you were just the most amazing support. You provided incredible guidance. You were very direct, um, <laughs> a bit of tough love. You held her accountable. But she really grew as a designer and a business owner because of your relationship. And so I'm curious, why is mentorship of other women in this space so important to you? Um, I think, I mean, Leandra is just electric, like her energy is amazing. And so it was very easy. But I think women need to, there are so many times where I think women need to ask, what would they do if it was for their best friend? It's really interesting. I talk with my team about pain negotiation and I know it's an odd place to do it because I'm the boss. And what happens with women is that they, you say, oh, you know, and da, da, da. And they're like, yeah, that's fine. And then it comes mm. back to me that it's not fine. And I was like, hang on, like we had a conversation and women are in this place where it, they have been done all these studies that have said if a woman had to negotiate for their best friend, they would negotiate really hard. But when it's for themselves, they negotiate differently. And I think that where it's not until someone else is standing there in a way for you I'd saying, on your I know that you, mm. you need more than this. You need more support than this. Mm. You need to be demanding better prices for this. You need mm. to, you know, I've done it to friends of mine who are artists or, or, lots of creators where I'm like, no, you deserve more out of this. And I think we're so tough and critical and quite um, unconfident in our value and what we present that we need people to go, no, I can see you and you're worth this mm -hmm. and, and you need to push for this and you've got something really special. So I think that we can all do that in our workplace. It doesn't have to be something as, as um, kind of formal as a mentorship. And I think we just sometimes even need to do it to ourselves. Say, so if my best friend was sitting here right now and we were having this pain negotiation, what would I tell her to say? So I think that, it, or if it was my niece, I have a 21-year-old niece. If if I was, you know, in if she was in my position, what would I, what are the conditions that I think she would need to thrive? I think we don't ask ourselves, what do we need to thrive? I think women ask themselves, what do they need to survive? Not what do they need to thrive and we need to demand and really ask for what we need to thrive so true we talk about thriving versus surviving quite a bit in the business oh. yeah we we love that language so you're absolutely right last year we sat on this stage and we interviewed uh, Rebecca Valance and uh, we asked her about your mother Carla and she had some beautiful words to say uh, that echoed um, the sentiment you know that was just uh, Anna just spoke about earlier um, she was a mentor. She was a supporter of women. She was just a beautiful soul. And so many people that we spoke to said the exact same thing. We wish we had have met her. What's one piece of, I guess, life advice? I know there's, I'm sure, a million things that you took away um, from her, but what's one thing that you're happy to leave with us and the audience today? From mum? From mum. Okay. Um, I think it was always just be true to you. Um, and I think so easy to say and hard to do, uh, interestingly with her as a mentor, cause she had such a, a strong sense of mm. herself. I once, I did this collection when I was pregnant and it's quite hard. I used to trying the clothes on <laughs> this monster belly in the way of mm. basketball. And I did this collection and, and it really, um, it really didn't work um, on many levels. And mum said, what happened? And I said, well, you know, you said to do this and, you know, my buyer said to do that and la la la. And she's like, you've got to do what you want. Mm -hmm. And I was like, She's like, it's always got to be what you want. Lots of people will say what they say, but it's, you know, you just, you hear what people say, but only take, you know, it's all, a, you've got to find your voice in this. So 
I think you just have to be true to you more than anything. Beautiful. Thank you. What a beautiful spot to end. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Um, it was, yeah, wonderful to share. Could talk for hours. I know. We could. <laughs> well, I think we're going to throw it out to the audience. If uh, anyone has a question, we have a roaming mic coming around. We can't see you. Anyone feel brave? We see your hands. Don't let it yep. be a man. It's usually a man. Oh, I can see someone up there. No, it's hilarious. I do all these talks, Sarah, like two men, 50 women, and it's always a man who asks the first question. I'm like, come on, women, we can do it. Thank you. Hi, how are you? Good, how are you? Very good, actually. Very good, feeling um, quite inspired by your words. <laughs> I would just like to ask if you could, I guess, encapsulate the word sustainability and mm. what that actually means to you and, and the direction of your business and your um, life as well. How would you define sustainability? Um, I have a quite old school, it, it's not a, a definition, I'm, I'm terribly bad at definitions, but it's a sense and the sense that I have around it is think about your grandmother. And why I say that is that our grandparents found ways to be resourceful and they didn't see it as a limit on their day-to-day. -day. And it was everything from you went on a picnic and you had a picnic basket and it might have plates and, 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 you know, like things, or you wanted a coffee and you would, you know, plan it in your way that you would sit in the cafe and you would actually drink it out of a cup. Or, um, one of my favorites is always, I have this wonderful great aunt that lives in the country and she may be on a tractor or, um, tending to sheep but she still looks incredible and just has like boots on the whole thing and and I I suppose there's this way that there's this care that's taken with the everyday and there's also the value that they see in all of the pieces that they have around in them they they're investing in this long term vision of whether it be beauty or craft or respect for the inputs that has gone into every piece around them. I often think particularly about, you know, farmers because they have such a deep connection. Mm. I don't know if you've tried to grow snow peas or tomatoes or all of those kinds of things that it just, I think we just need to reconnect back with how does each thing come to us? What was the hundreds of processes that went into it? And are we respecting the goods that we have in our environment, both in the way that we consume them, in what, in the value we have for them, but also in how we care for them? Mm. Um, you know, like, as I say, I'm this ridiculously overdressed person most of the time, but we laugh because my kids have this pile of washing like this and my washing is like this because I'm just really careful with what I wear and how I move in it. And I suppose it's just investing in the long term. So mm -hmm. I, I think that sometimes if you put a person in that place, someone that you can visualize that always had a way that they invested and respected in their environment. It's generally a grandparent. They're often coming from the country or they're a post-war immigrant or something. Mm. I think that it was so natural. It was, didn't need to be a word. It was just a respect that you had for precious finite resources. Yep. Does that help? <laughs> Any other questions? I can see a hand, I think, yep. Hi there. Um, I'm originally from New York City where I worked in the industry for mm -hmm. a long time. However, I only discovered you when you moved here and I absolutely love the brand. So I was just wondering, um, what's your outlook kind of, uh, kind of for international growth? And I'd also love to know your opinion on what you found um, individuals from around the world, especially the big fashion capitals, what their opinion on Australian mm -hmm. designers or feedback has been. That's really interesting because when I moved to Paris, no one had ever met an Australian, like zero. There it was before we had, like, we now have a system where if you're under 30, you can go and live yeah. in yeah. Paris. So then now there's a little plethora of Australians there. But I literally was asked, did I ride a horse? Did I have kangaroos in my backyard? Like no one had any sense of what an Australian was. And it was pre the 2000 Olympics. So after the 2000 Olympics, they knew that we could swim and everything. But apart from that, they knew nothing. 
about us culturally. Um, and now, sadly, I have to say that like in t the really great news about fashion on an international scale with Australia is we have caught attention. So I've been surprised, happily surprised at how people have been following it. I have I worked in Paris and there were a lot of centralist St. Martins, um, whether it be students or teachers or, you know, like ex-students and they learn about uh, like they knew Australian designers which I was just like oh my gosh something's really changed and I think that what happened for Australia represents this kind of casualization of how you put things together this relaxed approach that now people's lives have shifted and we've come out of this like ultimately corporate world and it is more of a lifestyle factor and I think that whenever anyone thinks lifestyle and free and easy they kind of they're always drawn into that end energy that is in Australian fashion that is really exciting um, and on the second part of my question what does like my growth or projectile look like for me I'm uh, very excited about kind of creating more spaces that I think can be real havens. I, if you haven't, oh, I have a store in Sydney that we've just opened. And I, again, I was like, what, were, what did we want? We wanted an energy and we felt that post COVID, we really wanted to create this haven for people. And so the whole world is green and it's amazing how much it's like this full saturation of color, how much it just relaxes you in a space um so i really want to i suppose really um create environments for women to uh feel comfortable with exchange but also i really am for me very engaged in what is the next generation like what are we setting up as an industry if we don't have any manufacturing in Australia if we don't have any pattern makers in Australia if we don't have those skills here our creativity is fundamentally going to be limited because most markets are much larger than us and therefore getting anyone else to manufacture them you are such a little thing so I feel really passionate about building the future capacity in those skills of manufacturing, pattern making and sewing for the future generations. Um, because I know for me, that is my liberation and where I have found I can really express myself in design. And I, I want to pass that gift. There's one pleater left in Sydney. Their name is Rado wow. Pleating. They used to be the whole building. The building is called Rado. It's the back of Surrey mm -hmm. Hills. They are now just in the basement of um, – this building called Rado and everything else in them is like fintech or, um, you know, uh, advertising all of those worlds. And I think there is something that you find in the physicality of working and seeing that process and working with that pleating and that fabric that you cannot, I don't want us to dumb down our designs because we don't have any manufacturing left. And there's a physicality there that we need to hold on to, to be able to do that. And there's one amazing mill left in Tasmania. I don't know if you know it. It's called the Waverly Mills. And they pick up all of the threads um, from all of the blankets. They make blankets and they then re-spin it and make these recycled things. So I just, I think we've got ingenuity in us in Australia and we've got dynamism and we need to use those skill sets to really propel ourselves because if we don't have any facility to make things, then we're ultimately limited to a virtual world, which... I think after COVID, we all um, love the real, the real world. The, the real world. <laughs> but, Absolutely. You know, the tactile sense yeah. of things. Yeah. So I want that for the future. Beautiful. I think we've run out of time. We could absolutely talk for ages, oh, forever. Bianca Spender, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you to everyone that has joined us here and to everyone watching at home. Thank you so much. Thank you.